the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, humans are made of meat, but animated by chocolate dipped in wishful thinking, which stretches in five dimensions, including time. Confederate hosts in Pennsylvania as Lincoln Monument comes to life and stomps on descendant of John Wilkes Booth. Plus, we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We have an interview with J.R. Dunn talking about his alternate history collaboration with the late Robert Conroy. The book is called The Day After Gettysburg. This is a very cool examination of what might have happened had Lee turned around and struck back after the Gettysburg uh, battle, Gettysburg, instead of uh, crossing over the Potomac, heading south and into history. The book has all kinds of great characters expertly drawn by Conroy and military historian Jeff Dunn. Jeff will discuss what it was like to complete Robert Conroy's novel after Bob Conroy's untimely passing. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Lee Aden Universe novel, Alliance of Equals, by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now here's the news. Well, mass markets are fanning out over the June landscape, even as we speak. At Booksellers Everywhere is Black Tide Rising, edited by John Ringo and Gary Poole. This is an excellent collection of top-notch stories set in John Ringo's Black Tide Rising zombie apocalyptic universe. The news that humanity has been dreading has come true. Zombies are real. Worst of all, we created them. The apocalypse is upon us, and every man, woman, and child has to answer a simple question of themselves. What do we do now? Answering that question, our writer is Eric Flint. Sarah Hoyt, Jody Lynn Nye, Michael Z. Williamson, Casey Azell, Mike Massa, and, and many more. And John Ringo, of course, also has a great story in the collection. Also at Booksellers in June is the mass market edition of 1636 The Chronicles of Dr. Gribbleflots by Karen Offord and Rick Boatwright. This one is a sparkling addition to the Ring of Fire alternate history series created by Eric Flint. An alchemist of the 17th century confronts modern science with often amusing results. In his relentless search for ways to invigorate the quinta essentia of the human humors, Gribbleflots plays a central role in jump-starting the 17th century new chemical and marital aids industries and pioneering critical fields of human knowledge, also pyramidology and aural imaging. These are his chronicles. Black Tide Rising, edited by John Ringo and Gary Poole, and 1636, The Chronicles of Dr. Gribbleflots by Karen Offord and Rick Boatwright. Mass market editions are now at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome J.R. Dunn to the podcast. Hey, Jeff. J.R. Dunn is a novelist, editor, and political commentator, active both in print and online. He's a consulting editor at The American Thinker, writing on military affairs, contemporary politics, conservative political theory, and liberal scandals and misbehavior. He has also written several essays for Bain.com on the future of the military and the military of the future. His columns have been reprinted, linked to, discussed in publications as varied as Real Clear Politics, 
The New York Times, USA Today, The Daily Telegraph, and Investor's Business Daily. Jeff is the author of nonfiction book, Death by Liberalism, The Fatal Outcome of Well-Meaning Liberal Policies. He is also the author of three science fiction novels. His books include This Side of Judgment, Full Tide of Night, and Days of Cain, widely hailed, especially by me, as one of the best science fiction time-traveling novels, and perhaps the best SF examination of the Holocaust, of which there are many. It's practically a genre. Uh, he served as the associate editor of the International Military Encyclopedia, which has been on hiatus since his departure, so obviously he had a lot to do with that thing going on. In addition, Jeff is one of our go-to copy editors here at Bain. From, I think it was 1920, America's Great War onward, he has been the copy editor for all of Robert Conroy's alternate history novels. When Bob Conroy died of cancer unexpectedly, I think it was December 2014, we had a couple of books of Bob's already in, and we also found out there was this partially finished Conroy manuscript out there. After looking at it, we saw that Bob had written a big chunk of it, uh, we'll talk more about that, uh, of this alternate Civil War novel. After getting permission and, and encouragement from Bob's widow, Diane, and daughter, Mara, we asked Jeff Dunn to finish the book as, as uh, co-author. He came up with a plan for doing so, which Tony and I thought very highly of. And now at Booksellers Everywhere is The Day After Gettysburg by Robert Conroy and J.R. Dunn. Let's go back to the start of this. What did you think when you first read Bob Conroy's um, unfinished manuscript? How did you plan to complete it? Well, I was, I was, I was really impressed by, uh, by, uh, by the work he'd done. It, it was it was a really solid piece of work. I mean, it wasn't just you know an outline and a couple of chapters. He'd really he'd really gotten deeply into it. So you know any any uh, sort of uh, sort of uh, uh, indecision I had about it just uh, just 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 just, just d d disappeared. I, I knew I could hand handle it from the from the basis that he created. Okay. Yeah. And and the thing is now now Bob didn't does not do did not do outlines. Which is kind of frustrating because I didn't really, really know for sure where it was headed. But he left enough clues in there, so I had a solid picture of where of where the book was going. And it just, from that point out, it just kind of, kind of unrolled itself. I had no problem writing the thing whatsoever. It was, it was, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't really a challenge. Do you remember how many? You had about, I don't know, fifty thousand words or so written, something like that. Yeah, but more, more or less, it was it was it was somewhere between a half and two thirds. So it was substantial. I mean, some of these, a couple of the scenes were you know placeholders. Yeah, where he'd obviously written written out the scene just just uh, just just as in, in, in basic form to come in and replace later on. But there wasn't a whole lot of that. I remember talking to Bob about. He asked me what what to write next at one point, and I said, "Man, do a Civil War and alternate history. I love those things." So. Um, can you explain the basics? He and, and he took took me up on it. <laughs> Can you explain the basics of the historical hey. situation you and Bob were building from? This is at uh, the high tide of the war for the for the south for the southern side. That is when Lee has crossed into Pennsylvania. He's fought this little battle near Gettysburg. What? Where are we in the war in in real time? My, my, my minor skirmish. Yeah. V vaguely vaguely known to most people. Mm. That's all too true. Sometimes these days, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Come, come to think of it, was that Vietnam? I don't know. Smart, smart thing to say. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, but basically, it's 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 it, it, the 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 hinge moment comes right after Gettysburg. Now, in the in the real world, Lincoln was was encouraging Meade to go after uh, 
Lee, try to intercept him before he got across the Potomac and wipe out the army in northern Virginia, which Lincoln would hope would wrap up the war. But as we know, the uh, Union Army, the Army of the Potomac, had been utterly mauled at Gettysburg, and, and uh, you know, wasn't wasn't in 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 in, in enough shape to uh, to uh, chase a bunch of puppies. In real life, what happens? Lee crosses the Potomac. Yeah, that that, that, that was the, the in the in real life, Lee crossed the Potomac and got away because Meade Me was smart enough not to uh, not to go after him. Now, in uh, day after Gettysburg land. Meade goes after Lee, and Lee, as as, it, as 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 he was incredibly skilled at doing, it was he was magnificent in defense. Turned around and beat the living tar out of Meade. But at that point, he decides to to step back into Pennsylvania and effectively occupy the center of the state in order to uh, to create create a kind of situation where where where, uh, where where Meade will have to have to batter himself against the against the. Uh, the Army of the uh, of Northern Virginia, in order to get any place, and also in order to support efforts by Jefferson Davis's government to obtain assistance from from the UK, from Great Britain. Yeah, and, and that's 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 the situation as it stands. Yeah, and that I mean that's the great hope. One of the great hopes of the South is bringing England in on the southern side and saying, "Why don't you just end this war now?" All the way through the war. Yeah. Yeah, all, all the way through the war. That was that, that was that, that was what they were banking on. And of course, of course, it couldn't happen because uh, the the because the the, the 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 war obviously was was not really going in their in their favor, and because the the British had the had the had the good sense not to step into a, a battle that, that really would have gained them nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a forlorn hope. The South was <laughs> full of forlorn hopes. That's it. The forlorn hope. All right. First of all, there was there was a thing that made Lee decide he couldn't cross, which was just a a different thing that happened. Which was what a tidal the the Potomac's a tidal river, right? So it rose, it was too too high to cross, in other words. So that sort of encouraged Lee to make his move and strike back, turn around, and strike back. Yeah. Yeah. So then they go to uh, where is it? Harris, Harrisburg's going to be our main center of the Confederate occupation of Pennsylvania, right? Uh, he, well, he kind of bounces around from town to town, but Harrisburg is, is the obvious center because it's, it's the it's the largest ta- town in the area, most easily defensible on a river, and so forth. Yeah, so and Harrisburg uh, ends, ends up being being the center. And Lee's thought is that Meade is very good at defense, but not good at attacking. Is that the? Yeah, which 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 is true. So he's turned the tables on him in that way. Yeah, me, 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 me. Well, as we as we can see at Gettysburg, Gettysburg, the, the Gettysburg victory for the Union was basically a defensive victory. He he sat there on the ridge and just let the let the uh, the Army of Northern Virginia batter itself against him until until was, there was absolutely no hope whatsoever, and then turn around and head south. Mm-hmm. He wasn't an attacker like Grant or Sherman or the others, but uh, but he was great at what he did. And the point is, Lee could uh, could could sit there in Pennsylvania without any real real doubts about the fact that Meade couldn't take him on, particularly since the uh, since, since the Union since the Union Army at the time was uh, overpopulated with political generals and various incompetents, you know, Ben Butler, people like that, who uh, couldn't or wouldn't take orders and were were incapable of carrying out a campaign. So so Lee could sit up there for for a while anyway in the middle of enemy territory. And defy the North 
without any particular worries about the uh, about uh, about the about the about the end game. That is until a real a real wild man, a real attacker, a real a real a mad dog comes up in the unexpectedly in the form of U.S. Grant. Picture victory came. Yeah, that, that came the, the same the same week as uh, we, we would like the next day after the uh, Gettysburg Battle, July fourth, as a matter of fact. So he conquered the uh, the Mississippi Valley that was under control, and he was he was basically at loose ends from that point. So he could, in fact, have been brought out to uh, to take over the uh, Army of the Potomac, except that the Halleck hated his guts, and everybody in the in the East Coast thought thought he was a, he was he was a he was an alcoholic, he was a drunk. Yeah. Everybody out out west in the Mississippi knew knew better because, because he wasn't really an alcoholic in the classic sense. He was a binge drinker. He drank under stress, and uh, his uh, his his assistant, his aide Rawlinson, was was aware of this and was able to uh, more or less control the situation. So he never got that stressed out. Rawlinson handled it. Yeah. Or he could get the grant, and that that was that, that was why he was able to continue uh, uh, steadily through the rest of the war. Yeah, that well, that was. I mean, bringing Mrs. Grant in always calmed him down. I think I remember reading. That, that, that's another point. So, uh, all right. So Lincoln's in Washington. He's fairly distressed now that Lee's sitting in Pennsylvania. Um, what is what is Abe thinking at this point? What's what's his um, what's the state of affairs on the Union side? Well, basically, Abe's thinking exactly what he's thinking through the rest of the war. How how do I get out of this? He'd been dealing with incompetent, inept, and incapable generals for, uh, particularly McClellan, for uh, for several years. People who who, uh, who who could not or would not carry out any kind of plan to to uh, to um, to so that would lead to victory. And he was he was he was completely stymied. Meade was a competent general, but he wasn't an attacker. So what was he going to do? He had virtually no uh, no alternatives. The only alternatives he had is this, is, is this drunken wild man from out from out west. Who his chief of uh, the chief of staff of the army hates? Halleck. Yeah. Halleck. Halleck hated his guts. Yeah. Then Halleck later on grew to respect Grant and 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 see where he'd been mistaken. But at this point in the war, it was just it was it was, they, they were at, at, at daggers points. Yeah. They really hated each other. But uh, so so Lincoln so Lincoln was was stymied. It's just it's exactly the same he was in the first couple of years of the war. He was stymied. He had no he had no place to turn. He knew that uh, that the strategy existed that would that would that would be the South. He knew that the that the North had the power and had the forces to do it, but he just couldn't get it together. So and it takes a while to uh, to get it together in the novel as well, um, which is part of the fun of the novel. Um, there is so let's talk about some of the characters and subplots of the book. First, there is the main viewpoint, one of the main viewpoint characters, Major Steve Thorne. Uh, tell us about him. Right. Well, Thorne is a is basically a, a, a volunteer. He's a civilian from out in Indiana. He's taken over command of the of his uh, cavalry unit after his uh, his uh, commander, Colonel Baird, has been badly wounded. He's lost a leg. And he's new at this, but he's very capable of it. At the same time, he's not really suited to be a commander because he's way too sensitive. He's, he's, he, he's, he, he, when somebody's killed in a battle, it really affects him badly. So he's, he's, kind, of, he's kind of facing, facing a, 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 a serious dichotomy here, a serious, serious emotional challenge in which he's, he's doing something he's good at and he's doing something he likes to do, but he's doing something that will destroy him too. 
and as as, as a further subplot, he gets involved with his uh, former commander's uh, very feisty and very uh, tough and no nonsense daughter, which is uh, which is, was pointed out in, in uh, I think of the review and Publishers Weekly. This is a typical thing in a uh, in uh, one of Bob's novels. Yeah, uh, she also supplies him with some some reason for living and a backstop and 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 some backbone as well. Yeah, important. That, 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 that's, that's an important point. Which, which this, this, this is what uh, this is what uh, female characters often do in Bob Conroy's novels. They, 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 uh, they, they, they're the ones who who, uh, who who take the crucial role at the crucial point in making sure things 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 are done right. He wrote extremely strong female characters at the same time kind of conventional female characters the 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 character that acts in support of the male so in a way he was a traditionalist but but in, but he but he certainly had had respect for women too and that definitely comes out in the book that's something that I, that, that I wanted to make sure that I uh, that, that 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 I kind of lived up to the the example he 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 made there. Yeah, particularly uh, with this character Cassandra Baird, who's 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 a very tough little girl. Yeah, and she 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 shows it in in the course of the book. She is um, she's an abolitionist who is willing to you know walk the walk as well as talk the talk. Uh, tell us about put herself on the line. Yeah. yeah, tell us about what she does and and a little more about her as well. Well, she more she more or less adopts a uh, a, a group of uh, runaway slaves, which is led by a, a very very uh, tough figure named Hadrian. It's she she in in kind of, in in a way she's kind of playing the the you know uh, uh, white redeemer woman, which is which has been a very common role in uh, American literature having to do with relations of blacks and whites for you know well over a century, but. Uh, the point here is that is that, that it was real. This this, this 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 is the role that a lot of people did take at the time in rescuing slaves. So you can't put this down as being some white superiority thing. I wouldn't anyway. But she adopts this this group and really lays herself on the line because uh, of course people the Copperheads and the Southern Southern loyalists are after them, want to wipe them out. In the end, uh, working with working with Hadrian, who was who's who's a totally independent figure, he's not any sort of uh, you know Uncle Tom of any, of any sort whatsoever. She manages not only to save them but to uh, carry out an act that, uh, that that completely turns around the the uh, progress of the war. Yeah, and the fact that she um, that'll read the book. She gets uh, Hadrian's respect. Hadrian's a, is not only a, a, a tough guy; he's also really really smart, and he is the leader of this group. Yeah. Um, he's got it organized, and without his support, none, nothing's going to happen. Um, Cassandra is going to have to get him on her side, and it takes, a, it takes her a little while, but she does. Um, on the southern side, we have uh, an officer. Corey, it's Corey Wade, right, Colonel? Corey Wade, yeah. Yeah. Tell us about, tell us about Colonel Wade. He's, uh, he's, not a, he's a sympathetic character in his way. Yeah, he's, he he is because 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 let, let, let's face it, most of the Southerners were not uh, Simon Legree slaveholders. Most of them were 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 fighting for a, for a legitimate cause as they understood it. It's like Robert E. Lee was was not fighting for the Confederacy. He was not fighting for slavery, as you know a lot of PC types are claiming today. He was fighting based basically for 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 for, for the state of Virginia back in the day. It was. Um, People loyalties were a lot more localized than they are today. People thought more of themselves as being, "I am a Virginian, I am, uh, I am an Ohioan," more than they thought of as the United States. The United States was still kind of formless in a way. It's, it, it, it hadn't it hadn't achieved maturity. 
So people kind of thought of it in, in a way that they would in a medieval era. That was kind of a survival, and that's the way it is with Corey Wade. He's he's not a bad guy. He's 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 kind of uh, he's kind of a cliche in that he's uh, and that he's a little bit too motivated by 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 adolescent ideas of honor and uh, military glory and so forth, much more than Steve Thorne is. Yeah, and he's also kind of blind to the nastiness of uh, of some of his men, like the execrable uh, Blanton. Blanton's a nasty piece of work. Um, tell us a little bit about, and he he does some very, very horrible things um, in the book. Uh, Indeed, t- he does. Tell us about that side of the war and what he's up. He's trying to do. He's he's a opportunist for sure. Yeah, well, well, in in, in in straightforward words, he's a scumbag. He's he's not a psychopath. He's not, he's not unemotional about it. He really gets excited by by sadism, by by, by tormenting people, and uh, and by and by bullying. That's his thing. That's and, and this is this is something that they, that they that you had a lot more of in the frontier era because they had a lot more uh, they they had a lot more um, uh, grounds for for getting away with it. You didn't you didn't have 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 have, have a uh, fully developed legal system. You didn't have law and so forth. And, and then people people could run around and get away with stuff that they just can't get away with today. And this is what he's doing, particularly since he's down in the south and he can get away with brutalizing slaves and so forth. That he that uh, that uh, you couldn't do in the north, you couldn't do in other areas. Okay, so that's so that's where he comes from, and yeah. we know he has he has quite a history of this. And we know that he's going to he's going to brutalize as many people as he can and really go over the top eventually. And that's where a lot of the tension comes in with Bland. As far as his relationships with Wade, he can sense that Wade is a little bit weak, that he's a little bit of an adolescent, that his his ideas are, are blinding him to uh, just certain things, including exactly how bad Bland is. So he's able to manipulate Wade in order to to get away with with stuff and have Wade much. Very reluctantly, against his own will, have Wade cover for him to a certain extent, which is where you know it's, it's it's the way things often are in real life with these with 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 these types. You see it all the time. They kind of manipulate the the boss, the uh, the, the president or or whoever it is, and and get them to to, to cover for him because you know oh well he's really not a bad guy. He's he's this that and another thing, and uh, that. The, Basically, when you get down to it, they couldn't get away with the stuff if they didn't have the cooperation of the people in charge. And this is what Blanton is real good at. In, in his own way, he's a complex character. He's, he's, he, he, he's not you know, your simple-minded uh, oh, menace or bad guy or anything like that. He's a complex character, but he definitely does not understand himself. He, he's got a very low cunning, but he's really not he's, – he's smart, but he's really not that smart. Yeah, he thinks he's got it all figured out in the uh, classic sense of yeah, he does. the yeah, criminal. That, that's, that's a good way to put it. He thinks he's got it all figured out, but he doesn't quite have everything figured out. Yeah, And as we mentioned, Hadrian, he's a particularly great character. He's a born leader, determined not to let this band of freed slaves um, be sent back. And uh, he also is smart and is he figures out Cassandra is good. Um, tell us more, and, and in the end, he he does some heroic stuff that's really fun with yeah. the, the plot to kill Lincoln. But let's uh, we won't get all into that. But uh, tell us a little bit about Hadrian. Yeah, well, the thing with Hadrian, of course, is he's uh, he's he's an alpha male. He's just the absolute leader, as as uh, Barrett says later in the book. The world would be spread before him at his feet if if he were white. And that's absolutely the case. But the thing is, he comes from a limited background. He was raised as a slave. 
He's uh, he's developed a totally cynical attitude toward the world at, at large, and particularly involving involving whites. White people are, are out to manipulate blacks. They're out they're out to use them and so forth, and, and that is it. So it takes him a while to uh, to uh, get it through his through his head that Cassandra is, is 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 actually on his side and is not playing some kind of role. And she's and also in particular competent. <laughs> she is teaching people to read. Uh, and and that, but then his, his his real his real moment of awakening comes and comes when the comes at the, at, the, at the ultimate point where he where he suddenly realizes that uh, that uh, that uh, that he that he in fact is of value to whites. This this is during the uh, this is during the plot to kill Lincoln when he makes the uh, the the absolutely. I don't want to get get into in detail and ruin it for anybody. But when when he when he makes the absolute correct move, encouraged by Cassandra. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about Booth um, and and Booth. What was going on? At, yeah, I mean, unless you have more to say about Hadrian here. Yeah, I, I, I think we can move on to Booth. You you obviously did it. Have know a lot about Booth. I mean, this pretty much reflects how the guy really was. Um, I think so. He was, you know, to, to, totally vain. He's probably closer to being a lot closer to being a, a pure psycho in the sense that we understand it than Bland. Totally vain, totally self-centered, a complete narcissist, and uh, and, and uh, very much romantic in the 19th century sense. That uh, you know, willing to throw himself into causes that he really has nothing to do with. Yeah. And he was uh, he was pretty famous. Oh. Uh, yeah, at the time, a lot of people, a lot of people uh, hear about Booth and don't understand the fact that the that the uh, that the family was the leading theatrical family of the time, and he, in his way, was the Tom Cruise of the era. He had, he had uh, you know, p- people look at, well, looking up to him. They 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 used to sell uh, lithographs of him in various roles and so forth and so on. The people would put put framed on their walls. Yeah. There he is, John Wilkes Booth, the great thespian, as, as they would put it at the time. <laughs> I guess his his brother was even more famous than him at the time. Yeah, Edwin, Edwin, Edwin. I think I think the third one was Julian. Edwin was 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 an even more talented actor, and of course he was sane, which is all, all usually a benefit. Oops, yeah. But uh, there was also Julian, who was a theater owner. He 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 did some acting, but he wasn't anywhere near as good as the other two. But he became a he owned a chain of theaters. So Booth. So it, was, it was an entire theatrical family. Booth gets together with um, with uh, a guy that uh, Cassandra Richard Dean, yeah, had some uh, dealings with before, and uh, they decide that uh, a kidnapping plot is the way to go. Could this have worked? I mean, obviously the assassination did work. Yeah, the assassination worked, but uh, that that was uh, yeah. There's so many weird things about that assassination. I mean, Lincoln's premonitions, his dreams, and so forth and so on, and the fact that the uh, that the uh, his bodyguard just wasn't there. His bodyguard just wandered off for some reason, and so forth and 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 the 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 the, the officer who was with I forget the officer's name, but it was the officer and his fiance. And uh, about 20 years later, the officer went mad and killed his wife, who was who was the same girl that that survived the assassination. It's 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 just it's just such a weird scene. It almost seems like fate, you know. It almost it almost seems like like, like it was like it was planned out from 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 from, from uh, the beginning of time that Lincoln would fulfill his task, he would do his job, and then he would die. Yeah. 
Boy, that sounds like a it's illogical in that sense. Time travel novel from you at some point. If yeah. You ever yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, well, you know, it, the, the, the one figure you really want to save is, is Lincoln because if he if he lived, everything would have been different. If he lived, the uh, the Reconstruction would would not have been as, as as harsh and brutal as it was. Something would have been done for the for the ex slaves that we would have had. Uh, uh, Sherman's uh, concept of uh, forty acres and a mule. You know, get get them out of the South where they're ha- where they're, where they're, where they're, where they're where they're hated, and then there's and there's no role for them. Get them someplace else. Get them on the frontier or something like that, where they where they can where they can build new lives and so forth and so on. This is something that just didn't happen in our world, and it's probably the great failure in the uh, aftermath of the Civil War. I mean, let, let's face it, a Civil War just it just raises hatreds and uh, and bitterness that that that, that is totally different from any other kind of warfare. So, yeah, um, and any different than it was, resonated. yeah. You know. So, I mean, even today, Jesus Louise, we're having people taking down monuments from this it's, long past war. That basically, the South is always the South is always the uh, the uh, the scapegoat for the United States. Everything that everything that goes wrong with the social relations in the U.S. is the South. Oh, the South, they're reactionaries. Oh, the South, this, the South, that, the, the South, and other things. The South, the Southerners are all racist, and so forth and so on. And this is this is when it's coming. I remember hearing that back in the '60s, back when I was a kid, during the Civil Rights era. And, and, and nobody gave 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 any any of the decent Southerners, which is, of course the vast majority, any credit whatsoever. You get this this you know deliverance comes out, and we all learn that that, that uh, <laughs> all Southerners have six fingers and uh, and IQs of eighty. Yeah, it's, it's, but it's man, totally could, can we play the banjo? I don't have to tell. I don't have to tell you because you, you know it very well. Yeah. But uh, but but uh, that's that's it's, that's the thing, and it's, that's that's something that, that you do when you're writing about the South, the Southern, or Civil War, race, anything like that. It's something you got to avoid. Yeah, there was uh, somebody you have to make was an absolute uh, effort to avoid it on the uh, on the podcast. I think it was somebody was like. Well, you know, they're making some big point about about how Americans approach uh, wars and such. And, you know, America has never lost a war, really. And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, we did. Maybe you didn't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but we kind of lost one down south. So uh, lost and won at the same time. A few years ago. And Al, Al Steele, he's, uh, he, he's, 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 he's another rep. And he was he was he was telling me how the the uh, the, uh, the the civil war that is taught in southern schools is totally different than the civil war that that that's taught in the rest of the country, and that's that's why, that's why because because the South lost. So the so the attitude the 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 the, the viewpoint is going to be totally different naturally, and that's something that, that we have to understand. But you know what we're, what we're getting today with this? Oh well, let's tear down the statues of all these slave owners, including the the evil mastermind Robert E. Lee. What we're getting is this coming back again. This 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 nonsensical uh, scapegoating of an entire region. Yeah. We got cut off by a thunderstorm that seemed to have passed through Pittsburgh, right? Yeah, that's right. One of uh, that's a third one in three days. That's that's what you call a typical uh, West PA summer. I see. So, um, what I was going to ask you uh, before we got cut off was, um, what kind of research did did you do to portray these um, great historical personages? You did, you and Bob uh, did a great job with Lincoln, with uh, Stanton, a harder thing to do, perhaps uh, Lee, and a great great portrait of Booth as well. Um, I, I know you 
you know, you have a huge uh, history background. Um, did you do anything particularly different or special for uh, co- for completing this uh, book with Bob? Not, not really. I really didn't have to. As you say, I've been uh, working on military history for, you know, a quarter of a century, particularly with the International Military Encyclopedia. So I just uh, knew, knew, basically knew, most of the material. You know, I, I did do I did do a little bit of checking. I checked some uh, some of the Civil War sites on the on the on the net web, which there is a plethora, and some some of them are really excellent. And checked back on that, and on uh, some of the uh, volumes I got to covering the Civil War too, in order to get particular information on people. And uh, I, I used to live on a street that was named after General Meigs, so uh, so that that probably counts too. Yeah. Well, what um, <laughs> do you have any? Uh, as a as somebody that has the history, uh, do you have any particular takes that would be a certain school of, of like thought about Lincoln or, or Lee? Not really. You know, I, well, well, going back to, to, to the PC, PC nonsense we've been we've been seeing the last few months. You know, the uh, the uh, reincarnation of the of the monster Southerners who have to be kept in chains. The uh, the, the whole I, I view them as Americans, and I view them as, as flip sides of the of, of, of the same question. People who were, who were thrown into a very terrible situation and had to somehow work, work their way out, and uh, you know they, they both did the best they could by their lights. But you can't judge them from the from the point of view of 160 odd years on that this is the, that, that they did this wrong, that wrong, and, and the other thing. They're both Americans, and that's the end of it. And I think that's 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 basically what I'm trying to say with that ending. That's uh, more, more, more or less a historical fantasy ending that, that, that is something that I, would, that I would really like to have seen. And of course, historically, it never, it, it never happened. It, it couldn't have happened. But in a real way, it should have happened. And I think that would have, would have accomplished a lot of, a lot of healing that uh, obviously to this day still isn't, hasn't, hasn't been accomplished. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one one of the fun things is Lincoln gets to in the book. Lincoln gets to to revive some of his old wrestling skills. We won't say exactly why, but <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the things I came across. That uh, that uh, what they, there were there were two items that I that that I that, that, that I ran across historically that I no longer fit in. One that Lincoln was the wrestling champion of Kentucky for a considerable period. He, he won uh, something like four hundred bouts. Which is, uh, you know, considering what frontier wrestling was like, you know, the ear biting and eye gouging and that kind of stuff, that's saying something. That was one of them. And the other one was that uh, Grant played Desdemona in a uh, performance of Otello that was put on <laughs> while Zachary Taylor's army was was about to was about to attack Mexico back during the Mexican War. Now, you know, I, I know this is very difficult to picture, but you have to understand that at the time, Grant hadn't grown his beard yet. Yeah. So. Well, he was. <laughs> that, those, those, those I'm sure he was that I wanted to fit in. He was a young cherubic Desdemona. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. He did have that kind of round face and the big baby blue eyes. So that yeah. it, it might have worked in the 1840s. It would not have worked in the 1860s or 70s. No question about that. It's a good thing he didn't uh, take up uh, a career as an actor or female impersonator. Impersonator. That's that's what I can say for for Ulysses Grant. Yeah, he um he did pretty well in that war, didn't he? I mean, it was only after that he got sidetracked with his his father-in-law and such. Yeah, he he, he, he didn't have much of a judge of character. Considering you know, considering the fact that he went in there, uh, you know, on, on his uppers, 
it's 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 not really known exactly what he was doing. Some people say he was uh, he was selling uh, firewood out of the back of his wagon, and some people say he was working as a clerk in his father's store. Considering the fact that he came out of that into becoming one of the leading generals of American history, right up there with MacArthur and Patton and uh, Winfield Scott, anybody, it's 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 a, it's it's kind of amazing. It's it's, it's really you know an, an American uh, a Horatio Alger story in the military sense. But you know after the war he you know, he, he pretty much d- 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 dumped John Rawlinson, who was who had been his right hand man in the. Uh, during the Civil War, who would, who would really look out for his interest and really, really more, more or less was there whenever whenever uh, Grant, 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 whenever it became too much for Grant. And I, I kind of, well, granted, uh, he, he died after only a few years of tuberculosis, but I think, I think without that influence, that really cost him when he became president because, of course, he, he, he had all sorts of hustlers and, uh, and uh, hangers on bringing him down and, and, and in the end destroying his presidency and that's a, that, 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 that was kind of a sad thing for this a sad ending for, for, for a great man we get to see a different kind of ending to the Civil War with uh, the day after Gettysburg there, there is a nice little uh, little technical gimmick that I managed to slip into something called the the acre gun aka the coffee milk gun a lot of people don't don't really understand that the first real rapid fire weapon was not the Gatling gun there was there was one before that and it was almost a success and it's one of the great trivia great trivia points points in history that I have run into that the first machine gun ever bought by a government official was 10 acre guns that was bought by none other than Abraham Lincoln mm-hmm machine gun ever used in combat. I mean, is that cool or what? Well, that's pretty cool. Um, where were they yeah. used in actuality? Well, well, the, the, the problem was that the that the original design was bought by some hustler who uh, who made uh, uh, pretty pretty badly constructed copies. And uh, but but a handful of them were used, and there was one cavalry raid carried out by uh, by Confederate forces across the Potomac, north of, north of the city, north of Washington, they figured that they could get away with it because there were only a couple of groups of, uh, of uh, Union soldiers on the other side. But unfortunately, these two groups of Union soldiers were both armed with these Avery machine guns. Mm-hmm. And they managed to cut apart this, uh, this uh, Confederate, Confederate unit. So if they had any idea what they had on their hands and uh, what, the, what, what use they could be put to, which they do in, in uh, day after Gettysburg, then it, it could have it could have been a uh, a battle changer. It really could have. Yeah, it's like the first uh, the first blow in the uh, death of the cavalry soldier. That's it. Uh, that's it. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And uh, one other thing you have in here is you have a really great sharpshooter character, Otto. Uh, what's his last name? He's German. Otto Hahn. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was one of uh, that was one of Bob's. Yeah, those those those, those were about Bob's ideas, and he he works out real well because because there's one point I wanted to make too is that the that the the U.S. was still an immigrant country. People were speaking in totally different languages. They were speaking in uh, in uh, in accents that were often incomprehensible. But they're all in the process of becoming Americans. This is something that uh, Martin Scorsese dealt with kind of in uh, Dance in New York. And I, I kind of wanted to take a different tack and show how it was working. And he was, he was showing how, it, how uh, what happens when it didn't work. I wanted to show what happens when, when it worked, where Otto Hahn, this kid, this kid from Bavaria, shows up and becomes an American hero. The book is The Day After Gettysburg by Robert Conroy and J.R. Dunn. 
Jeff, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Donnie. And thanks to Bain, as always. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yoskalen and Corville's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount armed attacks on others of Corval's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corval's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age and perhaps her very life is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 5 Dutiful Passage They would break out into regular space within the next ship half day and begin Andiri approach the passage sending information packets and news ahead. She would be on the trade bridge with Father, trading catalogs, questions, offers, invitations, news packets. The catalogs would be her priority. Father would answer queries and review the catalog entries that she marked for his interest, if any. Depending on the planet and the number of traders on planet, Seeking an early and advantageous connection, the double shift on the trade bridge might be either exhausting or boring. It would, in any case, be a double shift, and she ought really to be sleeping now rather than studying. Paddy sighed and rubbed her eyes. She'd been diverting two hours of her sleep shift to study since the passage had departed Shurbleek, having long ago found that she didn't need much sleep. Not really. Not when there was so much work to do. Not when there was so much catching up to do. Father had said she would be running double time, in effect, taking two lines of training simultaneously, cabin boy and prentice trader. He told her, quite seriously, that even with the double-track training, she would very probably not meet her goal of achieving her trader's license on her 18th name day. He had been quite kind and laid the fault where it belonged, on the attentions of the stupid Department of the Interior, which had taken Corval so very much in dislike, 
and had therefore interrupted everyone's proper life course, and not on any deficiency she had displayed. He had said, too, that it was no shame to stand a full trader on one's 19th name day, which goal he was confident she could meet. She had chosen to, well, not discount his words, no. She had merely chosen to see them as a challenge. After all, it wasn't as if she had come to the passage with no training at all. She had served two trips as cabin boy on Pale Wing, one of Corval's first-tier trade ships, and would have transferred to the passage herself for the next long circuit, save that Plan B had been brought into effect at the most inconvenient moment conceivable, sending her, Quinn, Silvor, the twins, Grandfather Lucan, and Cousin Corrine, scurrying to hide in Runig's Rock. There they had taken lessons of a very different order. In addition to their usual school fare, an accelerated piloting study. Disappointingly, on the Sims, while they had waited for word that Corval's enemy had been vanquished. In truth, their sojourn in the rock had not been so ill as it might have been, given close daily proximity to Cousin Corrine, who was a stickler of the first water. Quinn had minded it, of course, in addition to being all a twitter over Cousin Patrin, when, if he had only taken a moment to consider. But there, Quinn was made of nerves, she had known there was no reason to worry, though she did allow that she might have felt differently had it been her father who had failed to report in not once or twice, but at all. In any case, eventually they were called home. Or not precisely home, but to Shurbleek, a planet of which no one had ever heard, nor was that circumstance anything to wonder at once one actually saw the place. It had all been rather bewildering. Indeed, it was still unsettling to recall that Shurbleek was now the home port of Dutiful Passage and the seat of Clan Corval. Father and the Delm, including Uncle Valcon, who had been away for so very long with the scouts, now joyously returned to the clan and bringing to Corval a completely unexpected life-mate, who was forthwith revealed to be a Tiazan of Arab. So that was all right. Father and Priscilla, the Delms and Cousin Patrin, all of them had been there, around Liad, when it had happened. All of them had taken a hand in the event. And they had explained very carefully and very thoroughly exactly what had happened, why and what the stakes had been. Not only for Corval, but for all of Liad, and why they dared not fail nor take half measures. Paddy understood the situation perfectly though the Council of Clans had not, which had led to Corval's removal to Shurbleek in the Day Ellen sector. 
father had explained privately to her and to Silvor why Traella Fantral, Jos Gallen's own house, had to be raised, which had made her angry. Then she found that Jeeves had brought all of her things and had arranged her new suite in Jalaza Cazone, Corval's first and most ancient house, exactly as it had been in her own lost rooms. And perhaps she had, just a little, cried. Well, one could have accommodated even so much change in the service of destroying this department of the interior so that it would do no more harm to Corval or to anyone else. But as it transpired, the department had not been destroyed. It had merely been wounded, though badly. Indeed, the department had been so grievously wounded that anyone might have thought they would withdraw from the field. Father told her that this had been expected. Only the department had not withdrawn. They had unexpectedly and perhaps unwisely, after the most modest of pauses to rest and recruit themselves, increased hostilities. And that was why they, herself and the other youngers, and grandfather and cousin Corrine, had been removed from the clan's safe place at Runig's Rock. Not because their enemy had been utterly vanquished and their name ground into the dust, but because there was no certainty that the rock would not come under attack in the mad increase of hostility. One might have supposed from this that the Delm intended them to sit quietly under guard at Shorebleak, but no, that had not been the plan at all. Corval needed to establish itself upon its new homeworld. There were trade routes, trade routes advantageous to ships based upon Shorebleak to be built, alliances to be redeemed, and lives to be lived. Corval had said Uncle Valcon in his Melanti as Delm. Corval is ill-suited to the role of mouse. We began as dragons, and as dragons, we shall go on. Here he had sent a stern look to father and added quite unfairly, Careful, dragons. Careful dragons meant that the passage herself would not take port at any of the worlds they called upon, but would rather remain in orbit while crew was given leave or went about the ship's portside business in groups of no less than three. Which was a circumstance, Paddy thought, stifling a yawn, not entirely convenient for one who would learn to trade and for whom a solitary ramble around port might reveal treasures untold, or at least unanticipated wares which might be turned to profit. Behold, for instance, Anne Deerie. She was already scheduled to go down in father's group, and while she was not fool enough to think that apprentice had nothing to learn from a master trader, her own attempts at trade could not but be influenced by his presence. 
He might hold himself back, but folk would see the big amethyst ring of a master trader, and they would bargain with him, no matter they spoke to the prentice. It was a vexing situation, and one that she had been considering since the schedule had arrived in her duty queue. She could hardly refuse the assignment. She didn't want to refuse the assignment. It was far more than an honor to watch father at work. And he was going to be concentrating on artworks. Merely she wished to be certain it was her skill that carried her trade, rather than father's ring. She had great hope for the Mylaster scheme, perhaps too much hope. The transaction had somehow acquired a weight in her mind as if turning the Mylaster around at a handy profit would define her fitness for trade. Ridiculous. Well, she sighed again. Father was a healer, after all. Perhaps he could simply suggest to the breeze that he was a sack of potatoes and thus be safely ignored. Her screen beeped, reminding her that she had been staring at the same page of text for 12 minutes, and without, she thought irritably, having read a word of it. She might as well have gone to bed if she was going to waste her study time in dreams and regrets. Irritably, she closed the text, promising herself that she would catch up her deficiency by studying tomorrow over breakfast, well, no. She needed to review the tolerance tables over breakfast, so she would be ready for her shift with cargo master Ira Barty. Over lunch, but no. She would be on the trade bridge by then. Father had promised a cold tray at the console and a large bottle of tea. Oh, she would find time. Perhaps she would be less distracted next shift and be able to borrow another productive hour from her sleep schedule. For now, though, she'd best go to bed. Hey, Haz. The voice was familiar, even welcome, but entirely out of place. Even so near a comrade as Tolly had become, he had no place by her birth. Indeed, should the elder find him, come on, Haz, rise and shine. Blades and blood. If he kept up in such a manner, he would see himself dead before this day was out, and by her hand, before she obeyed the order to turn the weapon upon herself. She extended an arm, meaning to snatch and stifle him. Oof! Her elbow smacked into a barrier. Her hand smacked her nose hard enough to bring tears. Yeah, sorry about that. We had to fold you up some to get you into the dock. Gonna take some unkinking to get you out. There was a pause. Be a lot easier if you'd open your eyes and get with the program. The pilot's gonna be needing me back at the board for breakout. And you don't want to be stuck in there now you're awake. You're awake, aren't you, Haz? Because if not, maybe I should wait to thank you for saving my life. Recent memory came boiling back then. Tolly, the whistle, 
the woman striking him with the butt of her gun, opening a gash on his face. The kick of her weapon against her palm as she neutralized the threat to her partner. She opened her eyes. Tali's face was above hers. Tan skin, freckles, even features that she had come to understand soothed Terrans and Liadens alike. His hair was an undistinguished yellow, and his eyes were blue, neither particularly dark nor noticeably pale. At the moment, they were squinted slightly, as if he were looking into a bright light, were straining to see something clearly at a distance. You are yourself again, she demanded. You were not late for your ship. But he had said something just now, had he not, about breakout and the pilot wanting him at his board. I'm myself again, and I made my ship. All because of you, he said, giving her a grin. Come on now, let's get you up on your feet. Some while later, unkinked, on her feet, and in the galley, second handwich half-eaten, has considered what Tolly had told her. Wounded and in danger of her life, she had been brought aboard the ship that had contracted his services and placed in the auto dock. The pilot's mission was of some urgency. Tokel was reluctant to put her lift back and also reluctant so Tolly had it, to endanger one in the service of Clan Corval. Pilot Tokel had therefore contacted Captain Robertson herself and obtained her permission for Hazenthal's attachment to the mission. How is it that the captain gave her permission so easily? Hazenthal asked. Tolly was leaning against the counter, a mug in one hand, from which he occasionally sipped tea. Pilot Tokel's known to Corval, Tolly said. One of the first things the pilot said to me once we got you situated was that this ship doesn't count Corval as trouble. Hasenthal thought about that, around another bite of handwich. I will make myself known to Pilot Tokel, she said eventually. She is not among the lists of allies which I was given to learn. Also, I should report in Commander Lizardi. But given Tolly's recital of events, Commander Lizardi had likely struck Hazenthal nor Felium from the lists of port security several sure bleak days ago. Captain Robertson being aware of your situation, and ours, it wouldn't surprise me if she right away called Commander Liz and explained your leaving so sudden. The captain, of course, understood chain of command, Hazenthal thought, finishing the handwich and reaching for the mug of plain water. It had surely been done, as Tolly said, and already someone else walking her beat beside a partner who was not Tolly Jones. She finished the water, stood, and placed the mug into the washer, waiting a moment while Tolly dealt similarly with his mug. I will, she said again, make myself known to Pilot Tokol. Sure thing, Tolly said. You stay right here. I'll send her in. 
That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a 21-gun salute with those newfangled repeating rifle thingies and a long-drawn-out sigh of southern melodrama over the tragedy of the lost cause, together with a shipment of all the Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson statues, removed from the scraggly lawns of drug-ridden inner-city urban centers to join his own gigantic bronze colossus of Ulysses S. Grant's horse Homer for J.R. Dunn, co-author with the late great Robert Conroy of The Day After Gettysburg. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.